This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So, thank you very much for being here. A pleasure. And uh, I look forward, this was actually when we met earlier last April, and we were talking about our TV series here at the Pollock in this winter term, and Dick said he wanted to talk about his work and his career as a writer. So with that in mind, let's, let me start with the first question. So as I just said to the group, you started your career in advertising. Uh, can you tell us more about how you were initially drawn to writing for the screen? I, I've, heard, I've read somewhere that you said that actually writing and advertising is the art of the tiny. I wondered if you could just tell us more. Well, when you basically are trained to write a complete idea in 30 seconds, uh, storytelling becomes much more mutable. I do have one common trait that everybody who knows me knows. I hate things that are too long. I hate things that move too slowly, and one of the things I've said to innumerable directors who have a tendency to fall in love with certain sequences and you're two and a half minutes over, something's got to go, and I asked them, have you, when was the last time you saw a movie that moved too fast? <laughs> it's like, get it over with, you know. <laughs> the best movies that you remember are a hundred minutes or less, almost all. It's you know, it's, it goes to concentration spans. You know, in the old days, if it was gone with the wind, they put in a ten-minute intermission. People run out of gas, but that's a different um, part of the theory. That everything changes. Television is changing at a remarkably fast clip. It's changed more in the last five years than it did in the previous 75, so it's a new world. Yeah, we'll talk more about that, but I was wondering if you'd talk about the significant differences between writing for film, which I read you you initially thought you might want to do, and writing for television. Well, I did. It's not bad being a screenwriter if you're working. I mean, I was a screenwriter for eight years, got four movies made, some of them were school ties, took 11 years to get made, and then made 11 cents. It's not really, um, I, I didn't know it, but even 20 years ago, I was getting into a dying industry. It had, the, the feature business had slow-moving cancer, but didn't really come home to roost until... Pictures got too expensive, and people didn't like to go to movie theaters anymore, and everything's different now. It's it's just a different... Me, the, the media landscape is vastly different. And movies ideally exist for 100 minutes, and series exist ideally for 100 episodes. It's a very different storytelling rhythm. Mm -hmm. 
So since we're talking about your career as a writer, um, which authors were important to you and why? Thomas Dixon. Know who he is? Well, I'm thinking I do, but... Wrote the Hardy Boys. Yeah. Um, that's what got me started. I mean, I don't I know. I read how that much you love Sherlock Holmes. Well, that was, that was when I had gone through all the Hardy Boys and <laughs> somebody said, read this. And I really got hooked. And it's been a basic area of interest since. Well, let's talk about your earliest experiences in writing television, working for Hill Street Blues and Miami Vice. Can you talk about what was different about the television landscape at that time? What was it like working in television in the 80s? It was <laughs> very different. Everything we ran, that it was the best. The story of how I got into the television business is I was, my agent at the time called and said, do you want to do television? I said, no, I don't want to do television. They said, well, it's Hell Street. I, that's my favorite show. Yeah, I'd do a script. And I did a script and I turned it in and my agent called back and I had a, an office in the second floor of the house. It was an attic, basically. But there was a speakerphone and my oldest daughter was a year old. She's now 36. And my wife was carrying her around and my agent said, they want you to go on staff. I said, I don't, I don't want to go on staff. That's going back into an office. And she said, well, you do understand they're going to pay you, I think it was $7,500 a week. And because I said I'd write two or three more scripts. She said, no, 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 no. Listen, you go in and they, you don't have to go in every day, but there's a writer's room and they'll pay you $7,500 a week. And then they'll pay you for your scripts on top of this, of that. I said, what? <laughs> said, yeah, they pay you a staffing, a staff salary, and then you get your scripts on top. And my wife at the time walked over, leaned down, and said, it'll be there Monday. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I got into the television. Well, Hill Street Blues, um, which was one of my favorite television shows, is, is widely acknowledged as one of the premier achievements of narrative television. What was memorable about the experience of working as a writer on that show? What did you learn from the experience of joining and writing for a show with established characters and themes? Well, one of the things, and it's very strange, I can say very firmly the easiest show I ever wrote on or ran or created was Hill Street hmm. because there were three stories and some kind of comic runner and it was magic. Whenever you ran into a story problem, you just cut to one of the other stories and you came back <laughs> two scenes later and you could have done anything and somebody says, oh yeah, they shot that guy last week. <laughs> it was great. There was, the narrative drive was uh, highly manufactured. So the episode of Hill Street Blues that we'll see tonight, uh -huh. What Are Friends For, was nominated for an Emmy and a uh, Writers Guild Award and remains one of the pop most popular episodes of the series that you wrote it. What, why do you think this episode is especially and continually very memorable for people? Well, I would 
hazard a guess, I don't remember many of, specifically others, but Dennis, friends, who turned out he lived in Montecito, we became good friends. He did another show with me after Hill Street called Nasty Boys. And it's memorable because it's, he's taken capture, he's captured by a total psychopath. And it's really a chess game. And it's the essence of, I hate to say it, it's kind of the essence of dialogue because there is no action. So it was very satisfying and it was my first television script, so I thought, oh, this is, this is easy. <laughs> but I will mention, because most people out here know David Milch, and I said it earlier this evening, he's pretty ill right now, but it's a vastly overused word. But he is the only true genius that I've met in 40 years out here. And an incredibly brilliant writer, incredibly intellectually astute, and totally crazy. That he always showed up for an hour to an hour and a half late for room meetings, writing meetings. And I had pitched out uh, this thing as uh, the guy who got eaten in Jurassic Park, the skinny actor. Um, who played various roles on Hill Street because he was crazy. And I pitched out, Rambo was in the theaters at the time, the first one, First Blood. And I said, how about if he goes in and he takes over a Chinese restaurant and thinks he's in Vietnam and, you know, takes the customer's prisoner and says, you know, we ate fish heads. And everybody said, yeah, that's a, that, he can do that. And David came in, and Jeff Lewis, who was the showrunner with him, said, David, what do you think? Marty, uh, whatever his name was, is Rambo. And he went, who thought of that? And he looked at me, and he said, this is yours, right? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, you know, everybody here went to very good schools. Everybody's educated. But who the f*** is going to want to watch an episode about a dead French poet? Now, that's esoteric. <laughs> Not that Rambo. <laughs> so after Hill Street Blues, you transitioned to writing and producing for Miami Vice. How was your experience different uh, as a writer from Miami Vice from Hill Street Blues? Don Johnson. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but as you said... You know, you could have a wonderful performer, a very beautiful, handsome actor, but they their words are the writers. Yeah, so, and yeah. Uh, that was, I was brought in because if you remember the first season of Miami Vice, the it w- great looking, but there were no stories. You couldn't, you'd watch it for an hour and go, what was that about? <laughs> and it was great. I mean, it was... It had other production A values. kaleidoscope, but it was not a story. And Don and I had some clashes because I had this weird thing, would you please say the words that are on the page so we would know what was going on. But it was uh, an interesting period. Mm. But 
the show, I mean, the first episode I did, and it was because of uh, the casting director who was unbelievable. But the first episode, and this is 1985, was Liam Neeson coming to Miami as an IRA terrorist who gets a hold of a Stinger missile and was going to shoot down a plane going into Miami or leaving Miami. And NBC had some initial concerns because how big was the explosion going to be? I said, well, no, they're not going to shoot down a plane. <laughs> that was really, they didn't want to glamorize terrorism, but it went on and uh, it was Liam's first role in the United States. So interesting things happen. And you could get people before they were stars. It was... Yeah, that's clear from all the shows. I mean, so many talented people move through these worlds. Well, your television scripts have typically focused on dialogue as as opposed to uh, action. Can you say more about why you feel that dialogue, you've just said some of this with Miami Vice, why it is at the heart of successful television? Well, supposedly there are seven stories. I have no idea what they're supposed to be. At the same time, there are things on a television show that are almost like a metronome. There are now five acts instead of four, but ideally, act outs, you can plot it on graph paper, rising action, that make it, if you're paying attention, you're probably going to want to know what happened now, because it's the act out. And dialogue... Look, the reality is occasionally in the first couple of years of shows there are huge excesses, but one of the things that makes me go crazy is any writer-producer who gets up and says, we're making mini-movies every week. No, you're not. You're making a television series. And they're not movies, and they don't have the rhythm of movies, and they don't have the budgets of movies. And you can't show the same thing you can show in movies. So most A-level television shows are much better written than I would say 90% of the movies that get made. Because unless you have one of the increasingly diminishing number of directors who actually have a vision and the means to put it on a screen somewhere, um, it's not very interesting. I mean, I, if I'm going to go to a theater, with all due respect, I'd prefer something other than the Marvel Universe mm-hmm. that sort of epitomized non-writing. To me, mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, that that's what makes horse racing. You know, it's a, they're a limited number and there have always been when people call this is the golden age or the platinum age because of all the streaming opportunities, you know, 570 scripted series last year, and people say, have you seen Series X? And I've never even heard of it. And I'm sure many of you have had that 
experience now. There's too much. John Langraff is a very, very smart executive, said three years ago, there's too much TV. There is, and that's going to be one of the other things that is going to happen. There's going to be, there, this time next year, there will be 10 streaming services on. This time in five years, there will be no more than five. That the audience is not there to sustain this many choices. And I don't know, there are some people who just subscribe to everything, but most people have to pay attention to what they're subscribing to. And then the question goes, gee, I haven't watched anything on platform B in six months. Should I renew? I don't know. I, I don't, I have no idea how much of what you're watching now is ever going to make a penny. Just, it's, well, it's let's, ret- let's return to happier times. Okay. <laughs> to turn to Law and Order, which launched in 1990, you, you created two of the longest-running dramas in television history. So what were the key to the longevity of the series? I know some things, because I've read some interviews with you and things that you think, but just for the audience, what makes... What was the success? You're saying at the time it didn't have the same... You didn't have the, the multiple... No, but the... It, to 1996 or 7, I gave the heads of all the networks little leather countercards that said, it's the writing, stupid. Didn't give Bill Clinton credit, but <laughs> it is the writing. It's a very simple equation that the best Hamlet I ever saw was in New York in, I don't know, 1968, and it was in rehearsal calls. And on a bare stage with some large, just risers on it. And it was fantastic because it was really good actors. And it was those words, which, you know, the one writer who's covered every human emotion Mm -hmm. twice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get the right words, it'll last 500 years. So what do, are the key differences between the original Law and Order and uh, Special Victims units? Oh, yeah. I mean, are there differences in the way that writers approach the two shows? Well, sure, because they're so totally... Sorry about that. So totally different. That, And I've described this before, when the difference between a franchise and a brand, and with all due respect, Law and Order is a brand. CSI was a franchise. Nothing wrong with either choice. You know, the Palm is a franchise. If you go into any city you want a steak, it's going to be pretty good if there's a Palm. Um, the Law and Orders are branded Law and Order, but Law and Order is bifurcated. It's split in half. And the first half is a murder mystery and the second half is a moral mystery. So... It's a totally different rhythm than SVU, which is a closed-end, closed-ended cop show with one story per week where you see it in the teaser and they solve it by the end. Um, criminal intent, totally different. The, you spent 
20% of the time with the criminals. There's no interaction with the criminals on the other shows. It's a locked uh, police POV. So they're very different, but the brand is powerful. I mean, I found that out that Chris Knows did a movie called Exile that he had brought in with a writer, and it was after he had left the show and had been sent to Staten Island. And um, I said, you know, Exile is a good title, but I don't know if it really cuts through. And maybe if we put, made it a Law and Order movie, some more, and Chris was, he said, absolutely not. So I called Barry Diller. I said, what do you think? He said, absolutely. Put a column after, or, you know, a, a, a two punctuation marks after Law and Order. That's a really good idea. So no, nobody talks back to Barry. Um, and it launched a brand it was very it was the highest rated TV movie that season Um, it was pretty big success that was was the year before SVU well after tonight our conversation tonight we're going to also show the pilot episode of SVU Payback um, and many commentators have remarked that it feels like a show that has already hit its stride, that it isn't a pilot. Um, why do you think the pilot was so successful? I've read that somewhere where you've said that it was a blueprint for the rest of the series, but I wonder if you'd just talk more and maybe give the audience some things to be thinking about in this pilot episode and what seeds are planted there. Well, the show, as does Law & Order, works best when there is a moral conundrum at the center of it. And this one tweaked everybody's sensitivities in different ways, and it was unexpected. And the reason that it looked that way is at that point, the core team inside the company had been doing law and order for eight years. We'd done three or four other series that have been 13 or an out or one season and out. And it's the one thing that networks know we have, which is real in-depth bench strength and people who can make these shows because it's brutal. I mean, it's linked marathons and it doesn't matter which one you're doing in the middle of February when there's so eight or nine episodes left, people go insane. You know, you've been working since July and then Chicago, the first season on fire, they were outside, and I think it's the record for the coldest filming ever. It was 32 below with the wind chill, and they were shooting dialogue, you know, it's like, oh, geez, (laughs) nobody died. Um, But it's it's a lot of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And the crossovers, they're practically insurrections because it's so complicated to have people going from the three shows into specific scenes and not other scenes. and It's a nightmare, but it's ratings crack. I mean, it was 
unbelievable. The, the week of the three-way crossover, it affected FBI and it affected SVU and the five uh, shows between them that week, I think the total hit uh, 68 million viewers, L7s. That's unheard of. I mean, one every in total audience, which is a more esoteric discussion, but all the demo stuff is going away. Nobody cares anymore. Hmm. It's how many people are watching. So I got lots of old people watching. <laughs> Well, actually, that helps me. That's a nice segue to my next question, uh, because you're saying that you know key demographic is old people. I'm not sure. I think that uh, it's more varied than that. Um, it is. I'm but you know, for SVU, uh, there's been a lot written about SVU as a key demographic being women and especially younger women. And I wanted you to talk about why you think that might be the case. Well, the thing that's truly amazing when you've been on. For 21 years, I can't tell you the number of women in their 20s and 30s who literally grew up with the show and watched it with their mothers. Mm -hmm. And the second generation thing is really cool. I mean, they're going to inculcate their daughters and <laughs> go on. And well, someone said Mariska will retire kind of a... in a wheelchair. <laughs> Well, even in, in, in like scholars who study horror films talk about how since the 70s, for instance, that a key demographic for horror movies was young women yeah. who would go as a kind of prophylactic or as a kind of training. Like if you can withstand, you know, Friday the 13th, if you can withstand the victim, that, you know, somehow it makes you feel like you can cope. And they say, what I've read people saying the same about SVU, that it's a kind of training manual. And also the show is at once... Um, entertaining, but there's always an educational kind of, you learn something about the law or how it doesn't work, or you learn different things. Uh, it's, look, it's still fun. Yeah. And TMZ, I was out at a restaurant, and this guy sticks a camera in my face and said, Dick, Dick, are you going to do Harvey Weinstein? And I usually don't even stop. I went, <laughs> have you ever watched the show? <laughs> We've been doing Harvey Weinstein for 20 years. <laughs> okay, but that leads me to my next question, which, and I think this is actually more complicated than it sounds, but I really want to hear what you have to say. Uh, how, you know, okay, so episodes and many stories ripped from the headlines, so on. And as you've said, it's, you might take the stories from the headlines, but not the body of the story. No. And you're not trying to locate things in a particular place. And yet, one of the reasons that I think a lot of the episodes really work is that they seem contemporary, but never dated. But you can't locate, well, I would say for the episode t that tonight of SVU, it seems very much coming out of... The, you know, the Serbian. I mean, you could see, you could oh, maybe... Oh, the pilot. Yeah, the pilot. Oh, no, the pilot was, you know, ripped from the headlines, but... Yeah. There was never a taxi driver who had various parts cut off. Yeah. It's just the, create, the, the top of mind knowledge of what the actual events were helped these types of episodes. Mm -hmm. But I still really like the pilot because it is finished. It doesn't feel like people on a set for the first time. And... 
there was real magic with Chris and Mariska. They hit as partners. I mean, it was we flew the six finalists to New York for NBC when we were casting it, and it was like, well, that was four wasted airfares. I mean, it was so <laughs> obvious that it, yeah. I, the actors knew it. You know, it was just, oh, works, Cagney, and, you know, it's not Cagney and Lacey. That's... <laughs> so let's shift to some of your more recent work. Um, in 2012, you made your literary debut <laughs> with The Intercept, which was followed by The Execution and The Ultimatum, three novels. Can you talk about the appeal of uh, fiction writing from you, and how, how does it differ from your writing for a television I have screen? no interest in dipping my pen further into novels. I grew up wanting to write a great American novel, and many of you may not have noticed, people don't read novels anymore. <laughs> they just... I haven't read a novel probably in five years. If I'm going to sit down and read, I want more facts and you know my my type of novels are really out of fashion now you know I just don't there's nothing out there that feels really compelling to me including my own I thought I was I wrote them because I just assumed they'd immediately be picked up as some kind of long form and it would be you know wink movies and I remember when I I called them, they were ecstatic after the first three weeks or something. I said, you guys sound really happy. Oh, yeah, this is a great introduction for you. I said, how many copies have you sold? They said, 11,000. I went, what? That's a rounding error. It's like (laughs) 11,000. It wasn't worth... It really isn't worth the effort, at least in what my in terms of reaching mini specialization area is. You know, just people who read them really liked them. Said, "Wow, that was really well." They're now collectors' items. What can I say? <laughs> well, also in 2012, you launched Chicago Fire for NBC, which has grown into a franchise, a brand, a brand, a brand. I'm sorry, that slip up. Well, up it's up. it's kind of. A classic. It's got the only. It's got Chicago in the title, but you can't get much different than a cop show, a medical show, and a fire show. It's not CSI. So how is which it isn't di- bad, right? I mean, it's different. It's different. So how is it different writing for these shows, um, and also FBI and FBI Most Wanted? Is it different than what you're writing for Law and Order? I hope so. In what ways? Well, it's there. Uh, well, I'd say Chicago Med and Chicago Fire kind of speak for themselves. Um, PD is one of my favorite cop shows. I think Jason Begay is one of the handful of leads that have been on my show that's truly a television store. I mean, there is nobody like him, and he's dangerous. And... That's what Don Johnson was. That's mm-hmm. what it, heroes in television have to have an edge of danger. So you have to believe they'll shoot you. And you definitely believe Jason Begay 
as he's demonstrated, will shoot you. And um, the FBI shows come out of a real belief that no matter what the politics are, the the guys below that aren't in Washington and are not part of the political center of the FBI are it's still the greatest law enforcement organization in the world. My uncle was an FBI agent and you know when I was growing up I thought he was God. I mean that's different attitude now. <laughs> but um they if you spend any time with FBI people they're who you hope they'd be, not who you're reading about. Mm -hmm. That they are fiercely protective of the fabric that we all live under. That you know that uh, they don't like bad guys. I don't either. I think that you know the they're really bad people out there, and it's difficult to catch them. It's difficult, you know, The and most wanted is different because FBI is strictly a procedural about events that are taking place, while most wanted is basically an exploration of events that have already taken place, because that's why they're on the most wanted list. That's right. Um, but Julian is another one who is a real television star. There aren't that many. I mean, he was really good in Nip Tuck. He's really good in this. Uh, the the great ones when they get on TV shows like Sam and Jerry, they don't leave. They realize this train ain't coming around again. And, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've had not only some really, really spectacular leads, but it's not easy on ensembles to get five or six people who look like they even belong together, let alone mm -hmm. can keep you entranced, but I'm also a huge believer in change is very, very beneficial for shows. The Law & Order was a six-person ensemble, and over the course of the 20 years, there were 29 actors in it. And none of them were turkeys. I mean, it's... SVU, the only member of the original cast still there is Mariska. You know, it's... Life changes. Mm -hmm. Well, you've talked about... When we started talking, you were talking a lot about streaming, and we're going to... I'm going to ask you a little bit about that, but I read a recent interview where you said that you can't hold back technological changes and, and actually attempts to do so are, are just a prescription for failure. So how do you see the future for writing on streaming platforms and for multiple screens, especially since you're the broadcast guy? Um, and you, but you see technological change. Just a few weeks ago, NBC Universal streaming service Peacock announced a significant library deal for Law & Order and the Chicago brands. Can you say more about the potential for, for what, what you're seeing in this what on those shows or mm -hmm. <clears throat> they leased 1500 episodes of those shows 
Um, if you look at the history on cable, I don't know, I think Law & Order is running two marathons a week on Sundance and one on Wii. I, I think that's right. SVU is on three platforms. The biggest, it's the biggest drama on Hulu. You know, it's, there is an afterlife to these and I'm anxious to see if I, I don't know what's going to happen with streaming, whether there is something very reassuring when you're sitting there looking for something to watch and you're going through DirecTV and you're seeing what's there, bang. I don't know if streaming is going to ever have any comparable uh, glide path of people, oh, bang. Because you, my understanding is it's not going to change that much. You have to go on and say, I want that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it's going to do to the numbers. All I know is that people <laughs> have been watching a lot of the same episodes for 30 years. Right. I don't think the taste is going to go away. And it was very deliberate. Remember McMillan and wife? Mm -hmm. Remember his clothes? The, the tartan suits and the wide ties. And the first season, there was a very big decision that was made with Jennifer Meyerhausen, who was the costume designer, that the cops are in men's warehouse sports jackets and the you know the prosecutors are in Brooks Brothers gray suits, blue shirts, uh, ties. I defy anybody to look at any of the episodes of the 900 of those two shows or whatever it is, 950, and say what year they were shot in. You can tell by who's in the show, but not by the way it looks. It looks pretty much exactly the way it looked in the pilot. That's not accidental. Yeah. Nothing, things that are age identifying are to be avoided. What story ideas excite you and make you want to write today that perhaps you wouldn't, wouldn't have caught your attention when you were just starting out? Well, first of all, as opposed to what one person asked me, did I write all the episodes? I said yes, and I direct them, and I do the music. And only some I appear of in a couple. You know, I write pilots. I don't write episodes anymore. Um, I love coming up with the initial idea, and there's that the light switch goes on. You go, oh yeah, this will work. Um, there's one that's coming that I can't discuss, but I was stunned. When I thought of this and went back and I realized, oh, never been one. And that's pretty extraordinary. So I'm looking forward to that. I mean, that's really going to be an interesting power switch in terms of how stories are told because it's going to be it's going to remind people of a streaming 
show, but it's broadcast, so it'll be interesting. Yeah, sounds interesting. Well, thank you for being uh, part of our family here at the Pollock Theater well, and the Carsey Wolf Center. And I want to give a shout out to Marcy, who was yes. here the last time we did this. Through. We were, we were coming down in the elevator and somebody said, you know, this is the 10th year of the Pollock Theater and both of us felt older. <laughs> no, we're not. But you're not, you haven't changed a bit. Anyways, um, thank you everyone for coming. Again, let's thank Dick Wolf for his contributions oh. to our campus. And tonight. Thank you all for, thank you all for coming and Stay tuned no matter what platform you're watching. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.